Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. A lucky seventh novel today on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. Joan Mount just finished her seventh novel. We'll ask her about that, about writing and talking on Scribble. Joan, when I approached you on this, you said that you were not sure that we should do this because you have spasmodic dysphonia. I'd never heard of that. Well, Don, it's a voice disorder in which the the vocal folds in your larynx spasm or tighten when you talk. And and so it makes your voice sound high-pitched or gravelly, or sometimes it's difficult to speak at all. Hmm. How long have you had that? For about 30 years. Really? Yes. It, it comes on, I think, when you're under a great deal of, dis- of stress. Hmm. I had a very high-stress job, and I, I started having difficulty speaking, and I didn't know why. And for years, I didn't know why. I mean, people would kind of laugh when I would speak because I, I sounded kind of like Mickey Mouse because uh-huh. my voice would be very high-pitched. Uh-huh. And so I would shy away from any kind of public speaking because I was embarrassed. But I've since learned that, first of all, there's no cure. And around 50,000 people in this country suffer from that condition, including, by the way, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So I'm in very good company. (laughs) He he keeps talking regardless. (laughs) He's talking. (laughs) So, you know, I, I can't promise what today's interview will be like, but I'll do my best. Oh, I'm so glad you're you're here. I can't promise you what I'll be like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I can't either. (laughs) It's funny, but I always suspected that I was allergic to the microphone because we did Saturday Morning Live every time I would clog up and my throat would fill and it'd just drive me crazy. And I'd have to cut the mic and hack and cough, try to get in shape. And it's and then you have that problem. I have it too. Yeah, <laughs> but I've had it before this, <laughs> before <laughs> scribble. But I teach, so it's a yeah. You don't. It's it, it's frustrating. It is frustrating, yeah. and for me, I can't get the lower tones at all. Uh-huh. I I just I've I've gone through voice therapy, and it doesn't help. Uh huh. Hmm. It's it's just a condition and there's no cure. So you just live with it. 
Yeah. Well, I, it hasn't affected your writing, though. <laughs> no, it hasn't. No, it hasn't, fortunately. You said, what all have you done? I believe you said, uh, sent me an email when you said you were a proofreader. I was a proofreader at the dispatch for about 14 years before they closed. Really? I, I pro- used to proofread your column. <laughs> I wish you were around now. <laughs> <laughs> the mistakes creep in these days. <laughs> but uh, how did you, what made you decide you're going to write a novel? Oh, okay. I used to, uh, some years ago, I was working at the Appraisal Institute in their marketing and public relations, and I used to write <laughs> news releases and brochures and that type of thing. And one of the staff people, proofread my brochure and remarked, you know, this is really good. You should write, you're a good writer. You should write a novel. Oh. And I'm like, oh, really? I never thought about that. Uh-huh. And so then I started thinking about it. So one day I decided, okay, I'm going to write a novel. And so I sat down and I wrote one page. <laughs> And I couldn't think of anything else to say. I didn't have any other words. It's flash fiction is what that is. How do these authors write, you know, 50,000 words when I couldn't do more than one page? So that was the end of my novel writing until I retired. And then I was bored because I had a lot of time on my hands. So Mm -hmm. I was like, how about trying to write the novel? And then my little voice said, but you don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) And I was living in Evanston at the time. So I looked in the Tribune and found an ad for a fiction writer's workshop. Oh, nice. Good. And for the next two years, every week, I went to this workshop. (laughs) And I learned how to do a novel. (laughs) And that's when I... I finished my first manuscript. How many of you were in the workshop? How would... About 15. Okay. So they were the ones helping you well, figure in... out what to do and how to do and what worked? That, well, in that, I mean, I've done a lot, several classes and conferences since then uh-huh. and, and participated in critique groups. And they all work a little differently. Yes. But that particular class was taught by Jerry Cleaver from Northwestern. He was a professor from Northwestern. Mm. And he would get up and teach a certain thing and he would have us all write submit pages and then he would choose one or two from the group and he'd read it and then they'd all critique it Hmm. and the first time they critiqued mine it was like I was just like (laughs) terrified oh yeah it's unnerving (laughs) to be yeah yeah. Was he choosing them just randomly, or was he saying there's something we all need to learn from this? I don't know. I don't. You know don't know. Yet. No. All right. He always put on the page, "Good job," no matter how bad it was. Good job. Good job. <laughs> you know, we all kind of laughed about that. Well, you know, good job. If you do any writing, uh, that's fine. Uh-huh. The fact that you it's like tried. a red star or gold star. <laughs> yeah, and to put... keep going, to yeah. keep going. Yeah. But once you got started, you don't know how to stop. No. <laughs> it it it's in your blood, really. I think. Well, you know, I, I have thought about writing, and when I think about writing for fiction, I freeze up because I can't imagine. 
how that's done. I can't imagine, you know, how do I make up a story? How do I find a plot? And uh, I've we've talked to a lot of authors in this program, and some have said, I start writing and I'm not sure where I'm going. And others say, no, I have a complete outline of the story, exactly what's going to happen. How do you do it? I start with a, a just tiny little kernel of an idea. For example, The Waterkeeper's Daughter, this one. Mm-hmm. This started with when I was working at the dispatch, and there was an article on Art Norse, who was the waterkeeper for the Quad Cities. And I'd never heard of a waterkeeper. Yeah. So I read the article. Well, I had to proofread it anyway. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that would really make a good idea for a novel. So I, I met I met Art, and he explained what it entailed. And that's how the waterkeeper's daughter started. It was just this idea, the intrigue of the word waterkeeper. Yeah. What's a waterkeeper? Yep. I've never heard of one. Yeah. <laughs> and that I think is exactly what spurs people. It's a word. It's, like it's little... an idea of a character. It's an idea. And then it goes from there. Mm-hmm. It just sort of expands from there. You you, you get a location. You get a few characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way I experience it. And then after that, the characters, you begin to think about a plot. And once you get those little elements, I I generally write a very, very rough draft. I, I'm not a detailed draft, very rough, just where I think this story is going to go. And most of the time it doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. It goes somewhere else. Yep. But I start there, and then, then I start writing, and after a few pages, the characters get up off the page, and they take over the story, oh. which sounds so weird, but then I stand back. And I'm just a stenographer. <laughs> and when I try to make them do things, then the plot goes, it, it, then it, it just doesn't work. It's, you have to give them the freedom. I mean, I've argued with the characters. Like, <laughs> I sat there one day arguing with this one character, and it was like, no, this is the way it's going. You know? <laughs> and I know that sounds weird. And to anybody who hasn't experienced it, it's like that. that's just too weird. But no. most fiction writers talk about that. I was going to ask you if your characters ever sort oh. of take over. Oh, they do. That's... That's and if common. they don't, then then you know it's not working. It's not you might go as well anywhere. quit. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, I keep waiting for it to happen, and then when it happens, it's like, it's like when you start yeah. a fire, then it yeah, just burst into flame. Oh, that's a great that, analogy. That's a, because I've heard so many people say that. Yeah. That the characters take over. Oh, they do. And I wonder, how does that happen? Uh, you know, the right brain, the right half of your brain, is the is the half that does these funny things. Uh, if you're schizophrenic, you hear voices, mm-hmm. you see visions, and so on. It comes out of the right brain. And as our brains develop, the left brain takes over and kind of shuts a lot of that down. But some of it pops out, mm-hmm. and it gives composers themes, and it gives novelists characters. Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, so your right brain is working hard, <laughs> giving you characters that argue with you. Well, and I have this one novel, Escape from Amber Key. 
it started out with the focus on this reporter and his brother, his older brother was kind of a free-spirited guy who just really wasn't amounting to anything and <laughs> was kind of jealous of his younger brother. He took over that novel. And I did not know he even existed when I said <laughs> he totally he totally took over that novel and now he's the main character in the novel I just wrote. Uh, he's so kind of like a James Dean kind of brooding uh-huh. kind of guy. So yeah. you're just keeping up with him. I was like, Zach, <laughs> this isn't about you. Oh. <laughs> All you right. Know, that's interesting because I talked to my mother one time and she was living with my younger sister and she was alone through the day and she would sometimes watch cardinal baseball games and so on. I went down to visit her and I said, how do you pass the time? And she surprised me. She says, well, she made up this family and they kept doing things and she would spin out. She's gone in her imagination, she didn't write anything down, but she went through about three generations of them and the things they had done, and she knew them intimately. If you think about that, it's very much what little kids do when they have their imaginary friends or they their animals <clears throat> come alive or whatever, you know, and that for them is very real. Very real. Very real. Well, for, and, for little kids, they see those imaginary yeah. friends and they hear them and they talk to them. Yeah. But by the time you get around anywhere from five to seven, left brain says that's enough of that. Enough. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Then you then then if you return to that in your older age, then you're crazy, right? But when you're young, <laughs> then that's the imagination. And well, I, and they say left-handers, and I happen to be left-handed, are more creative because they're left hand. Yeah, that's, that goes to the right brain. Oh. And I, I've noticed that with, um, if you watch television, a lot of the actors are left-handed. Huh. Yeah. yeah, left-handed people are in touch quite often with uh, aspects of the imagination that uh, we relentlessly right-handed people don't. <laughs> Can't access. <laughs> Your seventh novel is what? The one you just finished? It's, it's called Murder on the River Seine. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wrote that or started or I got interested in writing, my sister, my younger sister, Lucy, I don't yeah. know if you knew her, and I went to France and went on a cruise from Paris to Normandy. Mm-hmm. And so that's the background of this novel. But what happens is Zach from Escape, at the end of the Escape, he... Well, Escape is about human trafficking, and he saves his brother and sister-in-law in the end, even though he's kind of a you know lazy guy. But he's, he straightens up toward the end of the novel. And because he saved them from human trafficking, he ends up joining the police force in Tampa and becoming a police detective. So at the beginning of the novel, he's burned out after five years of going after human traffickers. And he has a big meltdown in the squad room, which is what I want to read today. Oh, yeah. And so the commander says, you have to take a vacation. And that's it. You have no choice. Get out of here. So he he invites his brother and sister-in-law to go on the cruise from 
mm-hmm. Paris to Normandy. And on that cruise, a passenger is shot to death. And he, he has a cabin steward that's a, a lovely English girl. Mm-hmm. She's accused of the crime. And he's convinced that she's innocent. So he offers to help the court-appointed defense attorney, who's French, Monsieur, Monsieur Beaumont, <laughs> uh, to help him find, get to the truth. Okay. And, and well, it, it, well, it takes him from, from France to England to New York, Long Island. Uh-huh. So it's, it's kind of good. Yeah, read some, because when this comes out in the spring... Right? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Then you'll have people want to find it. Read something from it. Okay. Detective Detective Zach Taylor stormed into the squad room, slammed his notebook on the desk, and kicked a swivel chair so hard it fell sideways, tripping his partner who had just entered the room. Sorry, he muttered as he picked the chair up. Something wrong, Detective Johnson said, rumbling rubbing his shin. Zach took a breath and shouted, No, CJ, everything's just effing peachy. (laughs) He opened a desk drawer, then slammed it shut, causing pens and pencils to bounce and roll on the floor. By this time, he'd caught the attention of several detectives working at nearby desks. Some were on phones and waving at him to cool it already. Johnson lowered his voice. Problems in court? That son-of-a-bitch judge cave again? Zach looked his longtime partner in the eye. What the hell do you think? He picked up a paperweight and, raising his hand high above his head, threw it against the wall. It bounced, leaving a small dent in the drywall, then landed on the tile floor with a metallic clunk. Deputy Chief Richard Anders, Zach's commander, came out of his office, a concerned expression planted across his face. He glanced around the squad room, then his eyes landed on Zach. Taylor, he said, his steel blue eyes landing on Zach. My office, now. Zach walked into the cluttered office and closed the door behind him. Sit, Andrews said, indicating the chair across from his desk. Doing as he was told, Zach leaned back and folded his arms tightly across his chest, his eyes glued to the floor. For a few seconds, silence filled the space. When Zach finally looked up, Andrew said, What the hell's going on? Lately, you've been acting like you've got a bee up your butt. Want to tell me what has you so riled? Get some girl pregnant? The expression on Zach's face reflected chagrin at what his boss just said. What? No. He shook his head vehemently. God, no, he repeated. What makes you think that? Anders leaned back in his swivel chair and grinned. Well, something's bothering you. It's all I could come up with at the moment. You act like you're about to explode. What's got you so angry? Zach shrugged. Then he took a deep breath and said, I bust my butt to get those bastards off the street. Then the court lets them go on a technicality, and they're right back at it, sex trafficking young girls. The things I see every day, it's horrible, and there's no way to stop it. It's hopeless but not as hopeless as you think. Yes, some busts aren't done by the book and the perps get off, but look at the difference you and the team have made over the past few years. Word gets out and would-be traffickers either change their minds or take their business elsewhere. 
When Zach didn't say anything, Anders continued, Zach, you're one of the hardest working detectives on the squad, and everyone knows it. I can't have you melting down when things don't go your way. Anders cleared his throat. Then, as if a light bulb had gone off inside, he said, Look, you haven't taken a vacation since you joined the force. Seems to me you're burning out. You need to get away and forget all this ugliness for a while. Sleep in, go fishing, take a trip, go visit your brother, whatever. Then come back refreshed. What do you think? Zach shook his head and started to refuse when his boss looked at him gravely and said, This isn't a suggestion. It's an order. As of now, you're off the clock. Go home and stay there till you get yourself under control. Understand? Inhaling a short breath, the muscles in his, on his angular jaw tightening, Zach clenched his fist, then nodded and stood. Your badge and gun, Anders said, reaching out his hand. He added, you'll get them back, I promise. Chatter in the squad room stopped as Zach emerged from Anders' office. Several detectives glanced at him, quizzical expressions written across their faces. As he looked over at his colleagues, humiliation at the consequence of his behavior washed over him. Calling out, I'm out of here, Zach walked out the door. Very good. Oh, my. (laughs) My goodness. I have so many questions about the characters. Even how do you name them? How do you decide what their names are? They pretty much tell me. They tell you what their names are? Sometimes I name them wrong and they make me change it. Change it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just doesn't feel right. It Uh doesn't fit. It's interesting to me that the process you've gone through, as I recall from an email, uh, you had a publisher and then decided you were going to self-publish. Right. How did did your first book get published? I, well, I, back, 20 years ago, I hate to say it's they've been that long, but I had finished the manuscript. And maybe you know Mike Mike McCarty? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm t- I don't remember now how I met him, but I had gone on writing manuscripts, and I was trying to get an agent. I kept trying and kept getting refused over and over and over. And so Mike... Actually, I didn't know him. I don't know how he got my name, or I guess it was on Facebook or something. Anyway, he emailed me and said, why aren't you published? And I said, well, because I've been trying to find an agent, and I can't get one, and the publishers, if you don't have an agent, won't talk to you. Mm -hmm. So it's a vicious cycle. So he said, well, I happen to know there are publishers that will take your submission without an agent. So I started going to the smaller publishers, and that's when I was picked up by Whiskey Creek Press out of Colorado, Mm -hmm. and they published my first two books, and then they they sold the business to start publishing, and they published another of my books. So my first three books were published by regular publishers, but they did no marketing at all, mm. and they took like ninety three percent, ninety three percent. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the tough thing about having publishers. And I did all the work. Yeah. No, but they they did the formatting and they designed the cover. I will give them that, and they put it on Amazon, and that's about all they did. So, 
I belonged to a critique group, and one of the members said, well, why don't you self-publish? And I said, oh, no, I can't do that. And they're like, try Amazon, Kindle Direct, and you'll get much more royalties, and, you know, it's not that hard. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And that's how I began to do self-publishing. Yeah, we've talked to a lot of authors, and uh, self-publishing seems to be seems to be the way to go. Uh, I had a friend who's no longer with us, but she published 20 books, I think, which are all in print and very popular in England, but she could not make a living from that at all. So she decided toward the end that she was going to self-publish. But then I'm not sure. I think she may have passed away before that actually happened. But uh, I thought as popular as her books were, and as many as they were sold, the returns, financial returns, were just shabby. And yeah. that's true. And yeah. it's, I thought it was me. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm just not a good writer, you know. And then I realized n- nobody even knew about my books, even though I did book signings and I, yeah. you know, yeah. did all the things you're supposed to do. But it wasn't work. And even when I did get royalties, they took most of it. Yeah. And that that was really the final yeah. straw. And so now that you're familiar with the whole process of doing it, you feel more in charge? And more, I do. I, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm doing everything. Yep. I, you know, I, I, I do the formatting. I do the marketing of the book. And I find the designer to do the cover. And I pay. I have to pay for the cover. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's still not for me. It's not, it's, I guess it's more of a hobby, I guess, because I started late in life and I probably don't market as much as I should. I, I think some authors do a much better job than I do. Well, lots of, lots of writers are good at the <laughs> writing and don't, don't, no. aren't really interested in the selling and, part. You no, know, and, so. and Lily. Lily Sutterdahl, mm. mm-hmm. she does a good job of marketing, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, writing is is not uh, is not it's a way to make a living unless you are writing uh, the bestsellers or like Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you have established a name, when you have a book that sells thousands of copies, then you get people's attention, and all of a sudden. There's yeah. the possibility of making a living. But uh, as long as you're retired, I suppose it does stay mostly kind of a side occupation, but you are, you really keep going. Yeah, it, you know? it's really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the name of your of your book that you just finished? Uh, the, it's called Murder on the River Seine. Okay, and before that it was Riley's Dilemma? Yes, that was... Uh, yeah. Three years ago, it took me three years to finish this one. That's well, the another question I had was just how long a process is it for you? Well, in the beginning, it was just I I was able to write a book a year. Okay, and you know I would sit and write two or three hours every day. I was very disciplined. Yeah, but then life has a way of intervening, and you know mm-hmm. I, I had some personal issues, and then. We went on the cruise, and then COVID came along, and it was one thing after another yep. that got me away from the habit of writing. Yeah, I uh, 
I shop around for excuses. Well, that too. <laughs> Generally, you can. I can find some. Oh, well, we yeah. all can. Yeah, I clean. It's, yeah. I, Oh, I yeah. straighten things up. I do, and it's like this little voice in my head is like, "Well, why don't you? You Go should really down. do some writing." Uh-huh. And I'm like, "Oh, I can't do it. I, mean, I can't do it." So I go, "How about if you write for ten minutes? I can't do it. How about five? And then little voices. How yeah. about how about if you sit there for ten seconds and write two words? How about that? And two hours later, yeah, you know. But yep. it's breaking through that wall of resistance. Yep." Which yeah, writers talk about a lot because we always want to write. We but, want to, but... But then we're avoiding it, and it's very... Well, we can't avoid the clock anymore. Oh. <laughs> Joan Mouth, thank you very much for being here. Good luck with your seventh novel, and uh, keep at it, kid. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And that'll do it for this edition of uh, Scribble. I'm Don Wooten with uh, our good friend Rebecca Wee. We'll be back next week. I hope you will for the next Scribble.